One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Oh dear, what a start to the new year, isn't it? No one's on strike, easily get a hospital appointment. It does seem that the narrative is at least starting to shift because for so long you were pilloried if you talked about the costs of lockdown. It is up to the people of Britain to decide who comes here, in what number, from which country, to do what and where. 2023, a better buck up its ideas, I think. Welcome to a whole new year of Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Amidst a New Year news tsunami, there's one question, co-pilot, which so urgently demands our attention. One burning issue I need to put to you, and it's this. Have you taken your Christmas tree down yet? (laughs) Are all your decorations now not on display, tucked away instead in their scrappy bits of newspaper and tired, partially popped bubble wrap, crammed into the tatty cardboard boxes that somehow survive from year to year? Because if they're not, where are your standards? What will the neighbours think? The Halligan household decorations are down and the tree's been sustainably disposed of by me. I've done my bits at our local dump or our neighbourhood recycling depot, as we must learn to call it. But still endless boxes of packed decorations are still sitting in the middle of the Halligan Towers entrance hall. There's a standoff. Who's going to shift them upstairs to the darkest, dustiest recess of our loft? It's a battle I'm going to lose, Alison, but I can at least for a while pretend somebody else might do it for once. Mid-January family feuds over Christmas decorations happening countrywide can be serious, but they are as nothing compared to the domestic fallout from Prince Harry's new tome and the raft of privacy-seeking interviews he's done across major television networks. The Halligan decoration storage standoff is entrenched, but it's overshadowed also by widespread industrial strife, with rail unions, nurses, civil servants and possibly now more teachers downing tools and taking strike action. And this latest NHS winter crisis, our annual ritual within our secular religion health service, is also now in full swing. But don't worry, co-pilot, because Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has a five-point plan. (laughs) Keir Starmer too's laid out his decisive New Year vision. So decisive, he couldn't decide whether to present as authoritative politician or strike a man of the people pose. So he delivered his speech jacketless, with his sleeves rolled up, but with his tie on, (laughs) as if dressed by committee, his image makers unable to agree. I've missed you, Alison, and I suspect there are many listeners who've missed Planet Normal too. So let's kick off 2023 with that most important of questions, going fearlessly to the heart of our national debate. Have you taken your tree down? I have taken the tree down, but we've now got an artificial tree, controversially. So that gets put back in its box. But I've left up an LED wreath at the window because it's so horrible, isn't it? The weather is so 
dismal, pewter skies, absolutely dreadful. So I've kept a few Christmas bits around. What Planet Normal listeners don't know, Halligan, is that basically you're in love with your trailer, (laughs) which you take (laughs) clattering down to the dump every other day. This is basically replacing journalism, isn't it, in your imagination? I admit, I do quite like my trailer. (laughs) (laughs) You offer to take things for me on your trailer, such as your, my trailer's bigger than yours. Oh dear, what a start to the new year, isn't it? I mean, look, how marvellous is it? No one's on strike, easily get a hospital appointment, cost of gas coming down, everything marvellous. Oh, my goodness me. 2023, a better buck up its ideas, I think. So you've written this week about Prince Harry. I know you've also waded through Spare, yeah. his ghost-written memoir. What do you really think? Despair. Well, I had to speed read it. It came sort of Monday evening and I had to speed read it to write it about yesterday. It's very difficult, Liam, isn't it? I mean, honestly, if hand on heart, I'd rather not know anything about it. I think a lot of people are just exhausted by it. It's both trivial, who altered the bridesmaids' dresses, who got in a spat with who about Willie wanted Harold to shave off his beard for his wedding because he wasn't allowed to have a beard for his wedding to Kate. I mean, even the fact that you have room in your own head, that you have to make room inside your own mind for this stuff just depresses me, but it is dominating news coverage, isn't it, in the most extraordinary way. If you go onto the websites of many news organisations, you'll see 10, 15, 20 items dissecting this, and it is my job as a journalist. But there is an irony here, Halligan, because basically Prince Harry has a pathological hatred of the media. I mean, that is the one thing that comes through the pages of this book. He absolutely loathes, well, he loathes the paparazzi who he holds responsible for killing his mother. But yet he's in this sort of dance of doom or dance of death, isn't he, with the media. So he says he wants his privacy, but then he basically betrays the privacy of his father and of his brother, William, who he announces that they're both circumcised, you know, giving away these absolutely incredibly intimate details. He says, I had a frostbitten penis at the wedding, to which somebody online replied, I had the chicken, which I thought was <laughs> was one of the better phrases. Oh, I don't know. What do you make of it? I know you're not interested in it at all, are you really? Well, I'm interested in it in that I'm interested in journalism and the cultural life of the UK. And we're obviously a monarchy. In the past, when I've worked for CNN, I've actually spent quite a lot of time commenting on on the royal family and so on, more as a sort of cultural, economic and business phenomenon. But the observation I'd make is that once the magic disappears from a monarchy, you've lost it. Once the mystique has gone, then what else is left? And I think this, not so much the memoir, which I've skimmed, I haven't read it in as much detail as you, but I think the interviews... They've completely taken the mystique out of it, right down to rows about beards and who gets the nicest room and domestics with dog bowls being smashed and even family circumcisions and so on. I think it's really tawdry. And while I totally understand that Prince Harry may get wound up by being a member of the royal family, he seems determined to have it both ways and he's just not going to be allowed to have it both ways. Either give up your title and sort of disappear into as near obscurity as you can or 
be a fully blown member of the royal family, which when he was a fully blown member of the royal family, during much of his sort of young adult life, he did really good work with the Invictus Games, didn't he? He did really good work reaching out to charities and coming across as a bit more of a younger streetwise royal member. And I think it's such a shame that he's got himself into this position. And I can't help thinking that at some stage he's going to deeply, deeply regret it. What are his kids going to think when they read this book? What does it mean for their relationship with other members of the royal family? Yes, I'm sure he's very popular in America. And I guess that's the aim because that's the bigger market because there's a big market there for bashing Britain and it's backward ways and saying that the royal family is racist. But in the UK, I don't think he's done himself any favours at all. I think there are some staunch supporters of the royal family who bite their tongues and stick with Meghan and Harry. But I think for most ordinary people looking on, not too fussed if we have a monarchy or not, but happy for it to continue because it makes other people happy. I think an awful lot of people have seriously lost patience to hear the constant criticism of an extremely wealthy, privileged man harping on about minor domestic tiffs and the press indeed, because the royal family's always had a symbiotic relationship with the press, tipping them off about stories as often as they're chased down the road. So I think it's very naive and I think he'll live to regret it. I think that there are some actual interesting things in here. Just for the benefit of Planet Normal listeners, I should say that you probably might have seen some excerpts from the TV interviews. Harry is not the brightest bulb, really, and he's not particularly good at speaking, but he has got an extraordinarily good ghostwriter called J.R. Murringer, who also wrote Andre Agassi's memoir. And so the book Spare is actually beautifully constructed, has wonderful use of metaphor and observation and a degree of sort of gentleness and, and loveliness in the writing, which is completely lacking in Harry's own account of things. i just give you a really good line, Liam. We've heard a lot of bit of the sort of tatty gossip, but there's one passage where Harry's reflecting on the fact that he doesn't really read books. I think he's only read of mice and men, quite something to get through eating without having read a book, but he, he somehow managed it. And he said that his father was obviously disappointed that he didn't read Shakespeare and Harry or J.R. Murringer more likely says, why would I want to read Hamlet? Lonely prince obsessed with dead parent watches remaining parent fall in love with dead parents usurper. I mean, that is bang on. It all comes back to losing his mum age 12. And I have to say the passages in the book which deal with the loss of Princess Diana in that car crash and this very bewildered boy basically never fully accepting that his mother's died and none of the titled and entitled people around him ever discussed that with him. So it's a period of lifelong damage and I think he's acting out all the ramifications for that now. And we do have the King's coronation coming up in May. That's one of the huge things looming this year, 2023. And I do think that the um, Harry, of course, blames everyone except Harry. And he extraordinarily, Liam, in the book, he discloses that when he was in the army in Afghanistan, his personal kill total was 25 Taliban. Now, many military experts and so on have rightly said that, I mean, I know lots of army RAF people 
You would never disclose that. I mean, it's completely against ethics. Common sense. No common sense at all. So Harry has just been on American television and said, oh, no, it's not wrong of him to say he killed 25 Taliban. It's the media's interpretation of him saying he killed 25 Taliban, which has made the situation dangerous. Now, that is absolutely Prince Harry. That's infantile, isn't it? So put that in a book, which is currently the fastest selling non-fiction book of all time not least because you've been promoting it in multiple interviews around the world and then complaining that the media actually writes about something in the book is well it's pathetic it is and i do think that he will have put targets on his own back he says in this absolute drama queen way because of the dreadful royal family refusing to defend my family against the ghastly media these evil journalists we had to flee from the ever dangerous united kingdom and staff of the daily mail always presenting a lethal threat to everyone as we know and so there he is ramping all that up and he has actually with this statement about how many people he killed put a target on his back, on the backs of his wife and children, and I bet tripled the security bill for his own father's coronation. So watch that space. Back in the real world, of course, we've just watched Keir Starmer square up to Rishi Sunak at Prime Minister's Questions. Much of it was about the NHS crisis, ongoing waiting lists, also strikes. The Tories are bringing in some new legislation It really is incredible to me how much attention we've been focusing on Prince Harry. And we're almost guilty of it ourselves just in the last 10 minutes. While there Mm. are so many other things going on that are of such importance to ordinary people, I thought Starmer actually did quite well to point out that around 50,000 people are currently waiting for cancer checkups, saying that under Labour, they were guaranteed to get a consultation at least within a number of days, and that's now not happening. And interestingly, Sunak responded a much kind of more on-the-front-foot punchy Sunak, maybe because he's got a new press secretary in the form of James Forsyth, formerly The Spectator, a very smart journalist. And Sunak came back by saying something which I think is significant, Alison. He said, the reason, I paraphrase, we've got such long NHS waiting lists is because of the pandemic. He didn't say because of lockdown, but that is basically what he's saying. There's a report out from the IFS this morning, the Highly Authoritative Institute for Fiscal Studies, pointing out that a lot of kids who are at university now or about to leave school will suffer because they had less schooling or less tuition as they try and get a job while the economy is slowing, acknowledging the collateral damage of lockdown. You've now got the Prime Minister from the dispatch box acknowledging the collateral health damage of lockdown. It does seem that the narrative is at least starting to shift because for so long you were pilloried if you talked about the costs of lockdown. I'm sorry, it just makes me sick. He's saying, oh, yes, why are all these people not getting cancer appointments? How long have we been saying this? How long? And they still won't admit. Rishi Sunak, interviewed by Laura Koonsberg, he won't say the NHS is in crisis. The NHS is not a first world health service. Since last week, I have had more than 3,000 emails from Telegraph readers, Planet Normal listeners, detailing ordeals in A&E, in the NHS, inability to get in. Absolutely disgraceful how we can even hold our heads up with this stuff. And we've got the politicians, you've got Sunak, you say yes, admitting at the dispatch box, 
this is due to the pandemic. No, it's not due to the pandemic. It's due to the fact that the NHS, almost uniquely in the developed world, closed vast sections of the NHS. Radiotherapy, chemotherapy, diagnosis, referrals. I had tea on Friday with a senior oncologist. He says people come in for appointments and they say, thank you for seeing me, doctor. And this eminent oncologist thinks in his head, I'm sorry you're grateful to me because it has taken 84 days for you to get to see me and your cancer will be so much worse, so much less treatable because our health service is in absolute chaos. And the politicians, Starmer can stand there and criticise, Starmer and Labour would have had us in lockdown longer. So I want to see this COVID inquiry looking into why did the UK, as I've said, almost uniquely shut vast tracts of its health service, causing, we now know, thousands of excess deaths. And as you said, Liam, we've now actually got some of the mainstream media, Sky News' Kay Burley, talking to Steve Barclay, health secretary, yesterday, putting it to him, 50,000 more deaths in the NHS over the past 12 months. Why is that? And Steve Barclay replied, it's extremely complicated as to what the driver of all those excess deaths are. No, it's not really extremely complicated, is it? You stopped having a health service for normal people. And we've got some, actually, I should say, we've got some excellent emails about this topic from some brilliant Planet Normal listeners later on. And I'm sorry, Liam, if I sound a bit hysterical, but when you are the recipient of so many of these stories from people, it just makes me see red, absolutely see red. It's just astonishing what's happening in this country. And something we've been talking about, we should say to listeners, something we, you and I have been talking about now is the fact that reform becomes increasingly unavoidable of this former national religion, now battered, fallen God. I think that's right. The reason you and I are so touchy about this, some people would say, is because we see journalists now who were publicly criticising us during lockdown. Where were you during lockdown where your voice could have actually made a difference? Similarly, when Sunak, after lockdown, told Fraser Nelson of The Spectator, oh, I was really against lockdown, and he was being praised. I say, no, why don't you say something at the time? You could have made a difference, but maybe for your own political ends, you decided to keep Sturm and stay in the cabinet. We have had a tsunami of emails, you're completely right, about the National Health Service. Stephen Pollard, former Planet Normal Stairway, editor of the Jewish Chronicles, written a superb piece for the website CAPX. He is a cancer patient. He talks about how he has been looking for NHS reform since the mid-1990s. He started mm. writing pamphlets about it as a policy wonk when he was in the Labour Party. He was at the Fabian Society, actually, and got he absolutely got pilloried when he wrote that paper. I knew him at the time. I knew him in the mid-90s when he wrote that paper. And he got monstered, as we say in the profession, even pre-social media, for having the audacity to say, oh, maybe we could do this somehow differently, given that so many other countries provide free at the point of use healthcare without a massive, overly bureaucratic monolith at the heart of their health service. But I know you've got some statistics from George briefly before we move on. So I should say that George is a senior source within NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity, aren't we, of George's statistics? And that's why we report them. 
but we can't independently verify these numbers because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they are ever published. But we should say that George has never to date, as far as we know, been wrong. Yes, Liam, I think the reason I wanted to do a bit of George is because listeners are always very, very delighted to hear from this very brave senior source of ours. Also, because it's just something that jumped out at me that on January the 6th, just gone, the final document providing COVID modelling information was published. That's almost three years after government scientific advisors first convened an extraordinary meeting on January the 13th, 2020, to discover the emergence of a novel Wuhan coronavirus. So this is basically, they are now winding down the COVID modelling, the scientific advisory group SAGE and the UK Health Security Authority have been producing these COVID models and projections for all that period. They've been integral to policy decisions, but as we know, Copilot also highly, highly controversial about how much that information was exaggerated or misused. You and I always rely on George to tell us the truth. So listeners will see that on all the airwaves now, we've got the ministers and we've got the NHS management, such as the very few who are prepared to come out from behind their £250,000 desks to uh, address what's happening in their service. They are now parroting the line. You'll hear this every single day. Due to the rise in flu and COVID, it's putting pressure on the NHS. That is actually not true. George says there are currently just over 8,000 confirmed COVID patients in NHS England hospitals. That number peaked on the 29th of December at 9,500. The latest peak was about 1,000 less than the previous peak, which occurred in mid-October. Now, George says the cycle of increases and decreases in COVID infections seems to be following a now fairly well-established three-monthly cycle with each peak since last January getting progressively lower. So it's as good as over, Copilot. It's just become endemic now. Forget them shouting and saying it's all absolutely dreadful. Now, what's Alison's favourite word, Copilot? Nosocomial. Nosocomial. George says nosocomial infections still account for 40% of the daily new additions to the inpatient COVID positive cohort. So in the last seven days, George finishes, there were just shy of 4,000 patients who were diagnosed with COVID after admission to hospital, of which 1,600 received that diagnosis more than eight days after admission. Which means they were no nosocomial. <laughs> <laughs> Who says it's all bad? At least our vocabulary has been expanded. By the way, we should just say quickly, I think looking forward to 2023, as you said at the top, Rishi Sunak laying out his five pledges to reset the government. Rishi Sunak pledge. There will be more sun in June than in January. <laughs> I guarantee. <laughs> yes, yes. I will still have 10 fingers and 10 toes in December. Not all of the pledges are that ambitious, to be honest. But only because of decisions I have made. <laughs> 
But what we are seeing, I think, and I'm going to stick my neck out now, Labour are capitalising very well on the chaos, on the growing sense that nothing works. And Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Labour looking ever more like a government in waiting, Liam. They have slain the spectre of anti-Semitism, committed themselves to national security and NATO. Listeners will remember that Jeremy Corbyn wanted to take us out of NATO. And they're putting economic stability at the heart of everything they do. So I think that the focus from Labour we're going to be see is looking trustworthy, looking more competent than this. Now, you can hold me to this, but I think a crisis point, a pinch point will come with the May local elections, which I suspect will be a bloodbath for the Tories. I think they could have probably one of the worst election results ever. If <laughs> Planet Normal listeners who keep sending me their Conservative Party resignation letters are anything to go by. And also, just a tip to the readers, Boris Johnson is slightly on manoeuvres, coming out of his post office exile, whacking Starmer this week, calling him Captain Crasheroonie snooze fest. Off the back of his New Year's message to the nation. <laughs> yes. So I suspect if the May election results are as atrocious for the government as I can probably quite confidently predict they will be. Don't be at all surprised to hear of rumblings from the Boris camp. I'd heard from quite a senior donor that September has been penciled in by the Boris lot for another go at the leadership. So that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Last year's visitors to Planet Normal ranged from politicians to professors and spy chiefs. We featured listeners too, from students to frontline NHS staff. First up this year is Constantine Kissin, who was born in what was then the USSR in the early 1980s, at the very end of the Brezhnev era, before coming to live in the UK as a young lad. Constantine's best-selling book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, is a clarion call to those of us born here not to take the relative freedoms and prosperity we enjoy for granted. A warning such hard-won freedoms and wealth are easily lost. Driven by the contrast between his Soviet-era Moscow childhood and his new life in Britain, Constantine's become a leading free speech advocate, pushing back against so-called wokery and cancel culture as a stand-up comedian and author and co-founder of Trigonometry, his highly successful YouTube channel. I started by asking Constantine why he wrote his book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Because I felt that someone should remind people in the West that the West is 
actually good. The West has some values that are important. I think we've forgotten that we have values and certainly attempting to define them or defend them is seen as some sort of subversive activity. And I wanted to to use my immigrant privilege, if you like, to actually say some very obvious things about what makes the West good and why it's worth defending. And tell us why it is that your background as a comedian gives you a window on current affairs more broadly. You've made this transformation from being a pretty successful stand-up comedian to somebody who really is now a major commentator on all kinds of cultural and civic issues. How does your comedy brain help you with your current affairs analysis? Well, I think one of the first things that comedy teaches you is you go on stage in front of lots of people. And so you get to find out how people feel about certain things in terms of how they react to the things that you're saying on stage and the jokes that you make. But I think what drove me first and foremost into into commenting about some of the issues that I talk about was the stifling atmosphere that I personally saw in comedy. And I was never a particularly offensive comedian. I was never someone who felt that, you know, they couldn't make the jokes that they wanted to make. But there was an overall culture where it was becoming quite clear that what I thought was this quintessential Western idea that we have freedom of speech was definitely something that was not shared by many people, including among my peers and colleagues in comedy. So that was the first part of it. And even when I did stand up, it was always from a more satirical point of view. I was trying to comment on the things that were happening in society using comedy uh, to do that. So it's been a fairly natural transition for me. I'm a huge fan of comedy, but I know you feel that comedy in the UK, which has really been a sort of global superpower of comedy over many generations, is now at a low ebb. Why do you think that is, Constantine? And what is this phrase that you use a lot in your book, please clap comedy? Yes. So I think there are a couple of reasons that I think we should think about. First of all, as in any business, as in any creative industry, as in anything, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if you decide that instead of picking funny comedians to put on television screens, you need to pick comedians based on other characteristics, whether it's the background or the gender or the race or the sexuality or whatever, you will reduce the quality. And we've seen with the non-renewal of Mock the Week and the Mashra Report, that as you you know dilute the brand, uh, people stop watching, and and I saw this with my own eyes. So I think one of them is it's a thing that that happens in many areas of life in the West at the moment is you know the focus on diversity becomes so extreme that you forget that you're actually supposed to be making some kind of product. Another thing, of course, is the advent of social media and the culture wars that came on on the back of that. You've got a situation where audience members uh, feel much more entitled and they're more powerful now to complain because if you know. In the past uh, 20 years ago, you complained about a joke in a comedy club. Everyone just went, ah, it's a comedy club. Well, now you can go on Twitter, you can go on Facebook, and then it might become some kind of you know, story and whatever. Let's move on to immigration, which is really the heart of your, of your book. It's kind of the recurring theme throughout a book, which covers many different aspects of your life as an immigrant. And aside from the fact that you're an immigrant, this subject close to both our hearts. We've talked about it a lot over the years Uh, We both have a very positive view of the UK as people whose families have come to the UK. You first generation, me second generation. Let's talk about why so many immigrants to the UK are so mindful of the dangers of these small boats. Some people on the left will say, Suela Braverman, our Home Secretary, how can she possibly 
be so anti people coming across on small boats when she was an immigrant herself. What do you make of that argument? Well, first of all, they're not immigrants. An immigrant is someone who applies for a visa or indefinite leave to remain and is allowed and chosen by the people of this country to come. If the first act of entering this country that you take is to break its laws, uh, you're not an immigrant. You may be a refugee and we should provide some support to some refugees who are genuinely fleeing war and conflict and things of that nature. But this is one of the things that really bothers me. We must not conflate people breaking the laws of this country and coming here illegally with lawful immigration because one of the things that will happen over time is the backlash that will be fomented as a result of people breaking the law and coming into this country illegally will apply to all immigrants including people who followed the rules of this country and to me this is a fundamental basic concept that I don't understand how anybody can fail to understand it is up to the people of Britain to decide who comes here, in what number, from which country, to do what and where. And the people of Britain did not vote to have people coming across the channel in smoke boats and disappearing into the ether as the moment they arrive here, or to be put up in expensive hotels at public expense. So I think first and foremost we should separate the issue of immigration from the issue of illegal immigration, which is what you are talking about. And then why do so many immigrants have concerns about these issues? Well, because we know that the types of people who would get in a boat and come here most likely are not the sort of people that we'd want in this country in the first place. There will be some, as I say, among them who are legitimate refugees, uh, but they're likely to be the small minority. And, you know, every society has some people who are undesirable to be allowed into this country. And I think that's why we have an immigration system to decide who comes and who doesn't. And the people of Britain vote for politicians in order to address that issue. And I think the biggest issue, whatever my own views of this issue are, biggest problem we have is the politics and the policies and the reality on the ground and in the water does not reflect the democratic decisions of the people of Britain. And that is the biggest problem in all of this. You talk about the power of language here in the UK. People who are illegal immigrants are often conflated with people who are refugees. Many people say that all the people in small boats are refugees when clearly they're not, though there may be some, as you also acknowledge. In the States, what used to be called illegal aliens, a phrase that everyone understood, they're now called by some people increasingly undocumented Americans, as if it's America's fault that they haven't got their paperwork in order. Why do you think it is that this language evolves and that much of the media encourages the use of this language. I think the reason the language evolves is that language is a way to change how we talk about certain things. So if you describe people as they are, and you know this applies to other issues, I mean, we increasingly talk about what are illegal immigrants, that is not immigrants at all. They're illegal people, people who break the laws we've just discussed. As if they are all refugees, then it necessitates a different approach to dealing with them. And you can say, well, these are all people who are refugees and, and we must let them all in or we must have compassion. And we, we must have compassion always for people, of course. But we also have the rule of law in this country and the law of the land applies. And so I think the way that language is, is used, particularly in the media, is a determined effort to change the way that we talk about policy in order that we weaponize people's empathy on the one hand and also that we can demonize people who attempt to tackle these issues as being uncaring and lacking in compassion. Constantine, another time when I kind of punched the air in agreement with you when I was reading your book was when you cited polling evidence, and I've seen similar polling evidence, 
that the UK is actually, when it comes to tolerance towards and respect for immigrant members of the community, the UK is the most welcome and the most tolerant country in the whole of Europe, including the Scandinavian countries. In the world, only New Zealand and Canada are more tolerant of and welcoming towards immigrants. That's according to polling evidence from the Pew Global Institute, who I know you'll be aware of. Yet when people like you and people like me talk about the UK being a tolerant place, we get lampooned, don't we? You see me on the stage at Kilconomics arguing that as a sort of plastic paddy, as the Irish call us, I actually think, despite all kind of historic wrongs and grotesque relations between the UK and Ireland over the years, actually, my family's experience has been constantly improving. And all in all, England has really welcomed us. Why is it that it's so difficult for the people who have actually experienced the immigration, people like your family and mine, to get a fair hearing? I think it's because it doesn't match the narrative that people want to advance. I mean, Eric Hoffer has this great phrase that every great movement begins as a cause, becomes a business and eventually degenerates into a racket. And we've got to a point where we've gone from, you know, in the 60s, 70s and 80s and so on, where there were a lot of problems in this country with intolerance of others. And I know your family would have experienced some of this as Irish immigrants. We've gone from that to a society that is extraordinarily tolerant of others. But the institutions that were created, the agendas that were created, the opportunities were created for people to engage in race-based and so on, they are still there. And even though the problem is largely fixed, the people who've benefited from that entire process still need jobs, you know, and that's why we continue to obsess about superficial diversity instead of actual diversity of people with different opinions and different points of view. Instead, we obsess with you know, superficial things like skin colour and gender and sex and race and all that irrelevant stuff, in my opinion, because that's what our media institutions want, that's what they benefit from, the way this Ngozi Fulani story was covered at the tail end of last year to me was just a perfect example of how demented our conversation about race has become and that's because That was the interaction that she had with Lady Susan Hussey in Buckingham Palace the where were you from scandal And you'll remember it was the story of a woman being slightly inappropriately asked where she's really from and the BBC and other mainstream media in this country covered it like it was a terrorist attack and I, I'm not exaggerating they gave it headline coverage on the front page and that's because this is what gets attention. This is the, the, the media narrative. And it's, as you know, completely, completely, completely unrepresentative of the way that people in this country relate to each other. The, this is not a racist country. Black people and ethnic minorities like me are not, are not walking around constantly being assaulted or abused or mistreated or whatever. It doesn't mean there aren't a few racists, as there are in every country. But it's what sells. It's uh, what gets people's attention. And as I say, there are a number of people who benefit from this being an ongoing conversation so that they can be diversity czars on NHS boards and so on and so forth. And so I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People claim this country is intolerant and then they benefit from that and then the, the conversation is perpetuated. But I think it is so far divorced from the experience of ordinary people. That's why when you and I do say it, while of course there are some people who will push back against it, actually the vast majority of people know it's true. And the feedback I had from people from every background, you know, black, white, etc., to the book proves that to me. In a nutshell, Constantine, what does it mean to you that you 
a kid born in Russia during the Soviet Union. You've been able to come here to the UK. You've been able to make Britain your home physically and emotionally and psychologically. What does Britain mean to you? Opportunity. I think that's what it means to every immigrant who comes here wanting to better themselves and to contribute to the country to which they've come. You know, the thing that I'm really proud of is the Trigonometry, the YouTube channel and podcast that I host with Francis Foster. It's now a small business that employs lots of people, people from all sorts of walks of life who otherwise would not have had a job or would not have had as fulfilling a job as they do now. You know, I think that's really the promise this country offers people. Come here, make it your home and seize the opportunity that are everywhere around you. Make something of yourself, contribute, pay your taxes, add to the conversation, whatever is the the method by which you're going to contribute. You know, this has become an unfashionable thing to say, but I think the job of immigrants, first and foremost, is to come and embed themselves into the culture, to integrate and to make sure that they are worthy of the opportunity that they've been given because there are billions of people around the world who would quite happily uh, swap places with us. They don't have that opportunity and because we do, I think it's really, really important that we, we capitalize on it as fully as we can finally Constantine, what is the off-ramp when it comes to russia ukraine how can we get back to a situation where there isn't warfare on the continent of europe i think i said on question time last year in march when the war first broke out that i think the likely outcome is going to be that ukraine ends up conceding that Crimea is Russian and giving away portions of the two eastern regions, the Lugansk and Donetsk regions, in exchange for what I think it needs, which is permanent security. And I don't mean, you know, words on a piece of paper. I mean some kind of arrangement, whether that looks like NATO membership or, you know, a UN peacekeeping force or whatever creative solution might be created. I think the thing that would be foremost in Ukrainian minds is making sure this never happens again and it can't physically happen again. And in exchange for that, I do think you'll understand this even better than I. I mean, the value of Crimea to Ukraine is actually quite small. The value of Crimea to Russia strategically, culturally, historically is is very high. Because it's where its navy has been based for hundreds of years. Yeah, well, it's the centre for Russia to project its power into the Black Sea and beyond. The Mediterranean, the outside world. Exactly. And so giving that up would be a big deal. And of course, it would be a massive personal humiliation to Vladimir Putin. So I think once you start messing with Crimea, you're getting yourself into a lot of danger. But I have to say, I think the truth is that neither side is tired of fighting yet. And so until that happens, I don't really see that you're going to make any progress in negotiations because from the Russian side, the casualties, while to Western eye, they seem extraordinarily high. And of course, you know, 100,000 is the numbers that are being bandied about is huge. As you know, from Russian history, Russia has an appetite or a tolerance for casualties that is quite unlike almost any other country in Europe. So yeah, 25 million in the Second World War. Yeah. And, and across the whole of the Soviet Union. You know, the Great Patriotic War, as we call it, was an exception in in some senses. But look at the Winter War against Finland, a war actually I think that is much more like the one that we're talking about here, in which the Soviet Union sacrificed hundreds of thousands of men in absolute slaughter in Finland against a much smaller country for very little territorial gain. But they were prepared to make those sacrifices for quite a long time before they relented. So I think that's how it looks from the Russian perspective. The casualties are not troubling them yet. 
And on the Ukrainian side, of course, they're fighting for their survival. And from their end, while it's a brutal war, they're doing very well. And as the West ramps up its support, we saw in, in the last week, Bradley armored fighting vehicles from the US. The Poles are talking about Leopard 2 tanks. You know, you're looking at more support with heavier and better and more modern weaponry from the West. So the Ukrainians, they're not on the back foot. They've made territorial gains in the last part of the last year. And so I just don't think either side is tired of fighting, frankly. And so the off-ramp is for them to get to that point first, and then it depends what the map looks like at that point before you can really talk about how the negotiations are going to go. But as I say, I think from the beginning, I've said the likely outcome is Ukraine gives some things away or acknowledges the things that it lost in 2014 formally. But in exchange, the Ukrainians, I would imagine, feel that they must get permanent security and that would look like something like Ukraine joining NATO as Sweden and Finland by the way have now done I think this is from a strategic point of view this has been a disaster for Russia an absolute disaster no matter how it ends you know unless they're able to turn the tide and you know conquer Ukraine which I don't think is going to happen the response internationally has been I think far worse than what Russia expected it's been a very heavy price for not a lot of gain so far. Well, Constantine, I know you have dear family in both Russia and Ukraine. You feel this conflict very, very personally. Thanks a lot for sharing your views with us. And above all, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. Thanks for having me, Liam. Always great to chat with you. So there you go, Alison. That's Constantine Kissin, author of An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, published in 2022 by Constable, and he's co-founder with his fellow comedian Francis Foster of Trigonometry, a YouTube channel which now has, wait for it, 370,000 subscribers. I absolutely love Trigonometry, and it's a huge pleasure to hear you talking to Constantine Liam. I'm sure listeners will think, as I did, that we could have listened to you talking for hours, such an intelligent, thoughtful guy. I think what, what jumps out at me, really, and what, like you, I was punching the air at moments reading the book. He's talking about the West has values worth defending. And it's strange, but it's just a painful truth, really, that we do need now the outsiders to come and remind us of that. What we've seen in the West, this has cropped up on Planet Normal before, is the expansion of what they call luxury beliefs, beliefs that can be held by people who don't, as Constantine's family, live in a totalitarian society where being able to get food, let alone a decent education, cannot be taken for granted. And I really welcome that particularly from his book. It's stated very, very powerfully. We have lost gratitude for the amazing society which the wartime generation bequeathed us. I often think of them, Liam. I often think of my grandparents and great-grandparents' generation who laid down their lives so that their great-grandchildren <laughs> could diss everything that they died for. But it's a terrific book. Highly recommend it. I was struck by many things that Constantine said for him to say with his huge knowledge of not just Russia, but Ukraine as well. Dear family, in both countries, he has, uh, I know, for him to say a couple of times during that interview that he thinks neither side is yet tired of fighting does suggest that this ghastly conflict is going to continue for much of 2023 at least. But I did want to end just by talking about his book a little bit more. If you look at the chapter headings, Trust Me, West is Best, A Reality Check for Westerners, Stop Feeling Guilty About Race, Whiteness and Slavery, Free Speech and White Matters, How Language Conceals the Truth, Why We Need Journalists, Not Activists. 
it really is, I think, a well-timed book. And it's one that uses simple but straightforward language to convey complex, sophisticated and powerful ideas. And I think that's the mark of good writing. And I do think that outsiders or partial outsiders, people a bit like me and you, Alison, who weren't necessarily born to make our living with a pen in our hands. Certainly the people that we sprang from didn't do so. And people like Constantine, who are first generation immigrants. I do think, if I may say so, we make the best journalists because we are able to be insider outsiders, people who feel lucky every day to do what we do rather than being born to do what we do. And I know from knowing Constantine for quite a long time now that he feels every day how lucky he is to live in the West with his charming wife, Alina, and now their baby boy, making their living honestly, speaking openly, truth to power. And I'm personally really glad he's here. Now it's time for our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.go.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read them. And we've had a bumper crop this week, as we mentioned earlier, specifically about the NHS. Liam, you know we've had many devastating and important emails about the NHS in the past. This one from Gemma not her real name. She can't give us her real name. I thought made a fascinating point, which I think we should research more. Dear Alison and Liam, it has been extremely frustrating and distressing to read about the medical consequences of the COVID restrictions. This was completely inevitable. I was working as a practice nurse in a general practice surgery until April 2021. And even then, people were starting to disclose worrying symptoms that they had not sought help for the previous year. It is hard to hear Chris Whitty and others saying that people did not come forward due to some sort of unfortunate misunderstanding, i.e. an altruistic but misplaced belief that they needed to relieve pressure on the NHS. This is an unforgivable attempt to shift blame and an attempt to rewrite history to cover up for their failings. The truth is, and I saw it, that patients were deliberately discouraged and indeed prevented from attending hospital or their GP surgery by a fatal combination of fear-mongering and shutting down of services. I'm not sure you're aware of one other factor that relates specifically to withdrawal of care for people with long-term conditions during the pandemic. A large percentage of GP's income is from the quality and outcomes framework, essentially an incentive scheme that rewards practices for carrying out pretty basic care of people with a range of conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart and lung disease. Examples would be an annual check of the blood pressure of people with diagnosed high blood pressure. In the financial year 2020-21, the requirement for general practice to carry out this basic care was suspended by NHS England because of the pandemic. But the payment was still given based on the practice's achievement for the previous financial year. So, Liam and Alison, you can see an obvious reason why people with, for example, heart disease and diabetes are now suffering the consequences of not receiving any care. Practices were, of course, not forbidden 
to carry out this care, but rather they were not financially penalised for not doing so. They were always free to decide who they needed to prioritise and call in for monitoring. The good practices still did so. I'll leave it to you to imagine how many bothered to do this. So very many people suffering from these conditions now did not and could not access the care to which they were entitled, even if they were not too frightened by the fear campaign. The practice would just have told them it wasn't available due to the pandemic. We are going to be seeing the consequences of that neglect for many years to come for people with a whole range of mental and physical conditions. And I think it's scandalous, says Gemma. Thank you both for continuing to fight the system with your investigation, writing and broadcasting. I was particularly struck by Liam's comment just before Christmas that the consequence of his refusal to go along with groupthink has been a net negative to his career. Oh, how I identify with that, both from my clinical work as a nurse, but also from my move into working in a non-clinical capacity for an arm's length body of the NHS. Best wishes to you both for 2023. Please don't give up. Gemma. Powerful stuff indeed. And this is from Kim. Dear Planet Normal, I've tried not to give any fuel towards the fire of the Harry and Meghan attention-seeking campaign in their apparent dogged pursuit for privacy. Hmm. But I must admit to reading some of the articles and comments on the fallout of the drip feed of drama that seems to be relentlessly coming from their camp. As a therapist... I think my profession has come under fire for being one of the reasons for Harry's latest revelations. And I'd like to make clear not all therapies the same and not all therapists are the same. I agree that much, but not all of our mental health issues come from our relationship with our family of origin. One of my catchphrases that I tell many of my clients, though, is that most parents do the best with what they have, but some are not equipped as well as others. And children have developmental needs that parents are not always aware of. No child gets their needs fully met in childhood. I know I didn't. And as a parent, you often have regrets about moments where you could have done better. I'm certainly guilty of this too. But that's not to say some parents aren't horrifically abusive, and that should be dealt with differently. But most, in my opinion, are doing the best they can with the tools they have at the time. Part of therapy is to get behind your client's defences in a sensitive way, slowly but moving forward. Together, uncovering difficult feelings such as anger and rage towards a family member, which should be expressed in a safe, confidential environment. After that, you can explore any mitigating circumstances separately and start to come to an internal resolution of what you missed out on as a child and what areas of healing you might need to address as an adult. However unfair it may seem, these areas of healing can only be resolved internally and not through trying to change others. Should confrontation of a parent or sibling need to take place, this needs to be done with much contemplation of how the other's likely to respond, consideration as to the ongoing relationship or lack of, and your own need to confront, whether it needs to be done directly to the person or kept within the therapeutic space. Unbridled self-expression without listening to or respecting the other party is unlikely to have a good outcome, need I say more. Happy New Year to you both, and thank you for your continued work on the Rocket of Right Thinking. All the best, Kim. That's very well said, Kim. And Chaz said, you love this co-pilot. I think what I saw this morning sums it up. A graffiti artist had scrawled on the back of an ambulance, no patients left in this vehicle over Christmas. (laughs) Black humour, yes, but so nearly true. 
<laughs> so this is from Robert. Dear Alison and Liam, I can understand Alison's terrible time with mathematics. I had some excellent maths teachers, but also some terrible ones who happened to be sports masters. They clearly couldn't explain how to open a paper bag. But in defence of Rishi, it would be good if a higher percentage of school pupils, as well as the rest of us, understood some of the basics that apply to our own lives, such as how to interpret statistics. A 100% increase over a low baseline is not a great change, but it makes for a good headline and people should be well enough educated to understand that. They don't need advanced algebra or calculus, and I don't think he was meaning that. And I was surprised by the vitriolic criticism from the likes of that erstwhile sportsmaster Simon Pegg, who is, of course, an actor. It always puzzled me that mathematical concepts such as compound interest were always taught in the abstract rather than as illustrations of real life. Why not get pupils to look at home ownership and then calculate the cost of loans with varying terms and interest rates? Likewise, let them calculate the real cost of credit card debt. It's just a thought. Thanks, as always, for your wonderful podcast, which brightens every Thursday for me. Best wishes, Robert. And similarly, Mark says... Dear Planet Normal, as an economics student, I'm enraged at Sunak's subject illiteracy. Many of the things cited within his drive to increase maths are actually economics. I'd argue, as a would-be economics teacher, that economics is better placed to teach numeracy, as it is maths in context and in action. Cheers for the pod, Mark. Great emails there from Mark and Robert. I should say, Liam, I wrote a piece in The Telegraph talking about my own dread of maths, having been terrorised by my very mathematical father. And it was in, in light of Rishi Sunak planning to extend maths education to 18. Now, I queried whether that was a wise use of time, given that we don't have enough maths teachers to teach children well to the age of 16. I completely agree with the idea that both Mark and Robert say that we should be teaching people practical things rather than integration and differentiation, which was uh, my nemesis. But can I just pay tribute to you, co-pilot? What do you mean by that? (laughs) My great fear, dread, almost like Prince Harry's pathological fear of of the paparazzi. That's how I feel about when somebody asks me what nine eights are. They're always something like 72 or 64, aren't they? All those horrible ones in the middle of the times table. But by doing Planet Normal with you, I think just growing in confidence about handling numbers and statistics and seeing percentages being misused by people producing NHS data. So with you and George uh, and Charlie as well, our scientific advisor, I have come to use maths with some confidence only because I needed to know the truth and I stiffened my sinews and my resolve. So maths, I'm not no longer completely the epic dope that I once was. Don't say anything. Velma. (laughs) (laughs) And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's Alison's turn. I would like to give the email of the week to Gemma, not her real name, for telling us extraordinarily that NHS uh, GP practices cease to do basic but vital medical checks on their patients, leading to the tsunami of excess deaths we see now. Gemma, please send us your address and we will send you a coveted Planet Normal mug. Email us, Gemma. Put the words mug winner in the subject heading to that email, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And all of you, keep your wonderful emails coming. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the matters of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever 
to our producers Isabel Bajard, Elliot Lampett and our editor No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.